Today's reading is from Daniel 1, 3 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Gabe Coyle, and I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus. And if you're new, we have been walking through a series. We just started it last week. We're continuing today and exploring what it means to live, to live without control. Because if we're honest with ourselves, you, you can't really turn on the news right now. You can't check your Facebook wall or even listen to any sort of talk radio on the way to work without feeling like this world is spinning. Am I right? I mean, how many conversations have you had about politics? in the last week, probably more than you've had in the past five years, right? This is the reality of the world that we find ourselves in. And alarms, they're sounding from almost every vestibule. You could listen to social commentators, you listen to economists, you listen to an opinion poll, and everybody is asking this question, how on earth did we get here? And with so much changing so quickly, so much feeling uncertain, I mean, it's, it's subtle, but you can begin to have this overwhelming sense of anxiety. And last week, we, we began to explore what do we do in this moment in time, in the midst of these transitions in which we find ourselves. And what we saw was that as Christians, of all people, in the midst of these transitions we see in our culture and within the world, we of all people don't have to be relegated to merely despair and worry Instead, as Christians, because of who we are in Christ, because of what God is doing in the world, because God is in control, we can actually still be a people who celebrate. We can still be a people who hope because we can stand in confidence that God is in control. Now, that sounds really nice, (laughs) doesn't it? And man, I want to believe it, and I know we need to believe it, but there still is this question that's begging in the background, a question we didn't really answer all that much last week because we knew we were going to begin to tease it out this week, a question that every generation wrestles through in the midst of the transitions they see in their lifetime, a question that I think has become more difficult to navigate as Orthodox Christianity has become seen more as radical rather than reasonable, more toxic rather than helpful in our culture in the United States and maybe in the broader Western culture. It's a question that the little sisters of the poor wrestled with when the government told this group of nuns they needed to purchase birth control. You know, it was a question 
that the employees of Wells Fargo wrestled with when they felt pressured to sell accounts that people didn't need or pressured to forge accounts that people didn't approve. It's a question that Martin Luther King Jr. wrestled with when he marched in Selma. It's a question we need to answer today. And a question, honestly, we already are answering through a myriad of little decisions we make throughout our days. So what is this question? Here it is. How do we live without control without losing our soul? How do you live without control without losing your soul? When you find yourself in your work environment, you're in relationships, you're in your neighborhood, we find ourselves in our city, and our, our broader cultural milieu clashes against your conscience. How do you stand with integrity in those moments? How do you live without control without losing your soul? And listen, this question, it's so crucial we get this because if we don't get this, we're gonna miss seeing God work in ways we never thought possible. Our faith will be stunted. The, the faith of our children here in our midst when they see mommy or daddy, when they see Auntie Jane and Uncle Jack stand up with integrity in the midst of those tenacious moments. Our city will have an anemic understanding of the gospel because they'll only think that the gospel has to do with someone's private life rather than transforming and intersecting in every sphere of our lives. We have to get this right. This is such a crucial question, and I don't know about you, but I'm raising my hand saying, I need help. <laughs> I need help. Now, the good news in all that is that God knew we'd, we would struggle with this question, and the reality is, is that Christians throughout every generation have struggled with this question. So this morning, we're returning to the story of Daniel, a story of a young man whom God highlights, who upholds as a godly example of how he wrestles through this very tentious question and in a crucial moment in his life even gives us guidance on how to live without control without losing your soul. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1 or your Bible apps. And if you're using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 737. So first, let's recap Daniel's life up to this point, okay? So Daniel, he was actually pretty posh. Um, he came from the upper echelon of Israelite society. Um, it says he's handsome, he's smart, he's brilliant, right? And, and, and if there was such a thing, he would probably find himself on the cover of GQ Judah, right? <clears throat> One can always hope. Anyway, but here's the deal. Everything hits the fan, doesn't it? Like, we see the geopolitical landscape shifts. <laughs> There's not really any recovering from that, is there? No, the geopolitical <laughs> landscape, it shifts. And Babylon comes and they take over Judah. And Daniel's taken from his family. And he's actually trafficked back to Babylon as a slave. His name is changed. Why? Because what Babylon's trying to say is that, hey, the old you, the you that you thought you were, and everything that defined you as Daniel is dead. Now you are property of Babylon. And so this is who you are. You're Belteshazzar. You're mine, says Babylon. So they re-educate. They seek to reform and say, hey, why don't you fit into our cultural ideals? Why don't you embrace our gods? And listen, if you were Daniel at this point, put yourself in his sandals, right? If you're Daniel at this point, what kind of things are running through your mind? If you're honest with yourself, if it was me, I'd be like, God, where are you? I mean, do you see what's happening down here? How, how did we get like this? That's only natural. And you start to second guess God's character, his love, his goodness. 
This is the reality of living in a broken world where things start to spin out of control. And then what normally happens is that there's this switch within us, isn't there? Where we go from asking questions to actually this primal desire for survival. Where suddenly it's like, well, fine, okay, if, if God's not listening, then how do I assimilate to Babylon? How do I just make it through this season of life? What do I got to do to get by? And those are the kinds of questions that so naturally flow from us, this, this shift that's so natural a part of us, so that when you get to verse 8, what Daniel does here, it blows my mind. It's, it hits me like a ton of bricks. Look with me again. This is huge. Look, look, at what he, look at what we read here. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. So wait, what? Like, right? I mean, after all that's going on, Daniel's making a stink about some food. Not like, and here, let's be clear, it's not like he ordered well-done steak and he got it medium rare and he's like, why don't you just take this back, okay? There's something about this food. Some of you are pointing to each other. Like, why would you order well-done anyway, Jacob? Come on. Now, <clears throat> but some of you... <coughs> There's a reality about something about this food that Daniel says is going to defile him. Now, I've had some kale that I was sure came from Hell's Kitchen, but never (laughs) did I think that prime rib in any way, shape, or form was going to defile me. But we need to understand what this word defile means. It has this idea of being made unclean ceremonially. This is, this is really important for Daniel. Somehow this food, this meat, and this wine that comes from the king's storehouses, if he partakes in it, it's going to impact his relationship with God, which feels really foreign to us. And we need to ask the question why, and, and I want to be very clear, we don't know. <laughs> so there's that. But here's what, what, here, here are two big ideas that most commentators land on. First, there's a, the reason that Daniel's pushing back against this food, the reason he thinks this food might defile him is that chances are real good it wasn't prepared kosher, okay, in accordance with Mosaic law. And so eating this food was a big deal for someone who saw themselves as Jewish. If you look at the Jewish people throughout history, whenever they were in exile, there were a couple things that were identity markers that reminded them who they were, that even though everything else would change, this would continue to communicate to themselves they were Yahweh's, and one was food. It's always crucial to culture. If you go up to the Northeast, if you go to KCK, if you find different refugee or immigrant populations, what do you always see? Restaurants that reflect culture because food is so so key to who we are. So that's one idea. The other idea is that this food, chances are really good, the food from the, and, and the wine from the king's storehouses was sacrificed in some way, shape, or form before the gods of Babylon And so when this food was offered to the gods of Babylon, it was said that the the gods of Babylon blessed it and they put these like godlike nutrients in it. And so with Daniel, and here's here's my my suspicions. I think it's a bit of the mixture of both, okay? I don't think it's just one or the other. I think there's a mixture of both. Daniel sees all of this happening and he can't control what's coming to him, but he can control whether or not he's going to eat it. And he sees this food and he doesn't want to disregard God's word throughout Mosaic law as a Jewish person. And at this point in time, somehow he he doesn't want to give credit to false gods either. And so he chooses, he resolves not to eat it. And, And we read that Daniel's resolved, which in Hebrew, understand this word, it actually means to place it on your heart. It's this deep, gut wrenching commitment that no matter what comes, he's not going to give in. His conscience has slammed into the wall of his culture and he's chosen to plant his flag with integrity. 
And the order of this story is so crucial. Before we can move on, even to the rest of verse 8 or verse 9 and so on, we need to understand why this resolve is right at the very beginning. Before he talks with anyone, before he knows the outcome, before he's really even figured out his whole plan, all he knows is that he's not going to defile himself. He's resolved at this point. He's committed to the what before he's come to the how, you see? Now, when you think of someone who's drawn the line in the sand, those people who say, no matter what comes, I'm not going to do this. Think of a coworker, think of a family member, you know, a neighbor. Now, two words don't always come to mind when you find someone this tenacious, understanding and compassionate. <laughs> are they? Those aren't the two words you normally associate with someone who's so resolved down in the depths of their heart. But look what we see in the second half here of verse 8. Therefore, because Daniel already had made up his mind, right, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile, there's our word again, himself. He asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Remember, Daniel's been spared from death, okay? He's been invited now to be this chief slave in the king's court. He's been, quote unquote, given free food. But now he's been renamed. He's seeking to be re-educated. They're seeking to coax him and now reorient his whole understanding of the world. And he comes to this chief eunuch, which is basically one of those palace officials that oversees these teenagers and makes sure that they come to appropriate development. And he asks a question. I love that. Don't, don't, don't speed past that. Because... The very fact that he asks a question, you need to notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't come demanding. He doesn't come manipulating. He doesn't come lying. He comes and he asks a question. And what's so fascinating about this is he's really honest about the reasoning. <laughs> when he comes to this chief eunuch, that's, that's what really blows my mind. He doesn't try to figure out some compelling, unique angle. He just says, hey, I can't eat your food because it's going to defile me. Wait, wait What? He's like, I, I know you guys don't care about the God of Israel. I know you guys think that you've defeated the God of Israel and you want me to worship your Babylonian gods. You want me to eat this food. But, but I st you still need to know that I can't eat what you've just put before me. I won't eat what you've just put before me. So can you, can you help me figure out a different way um, so that I don't defile myself and my beliefs and my understanding of God? Remember who he's talking to here, okay? This is what blows my mind. This is Babylon. This is they smash babies against rocks after they defeat your city, Babylon. This is the kind of culture that does atrocious things to you in the ancient Near East if you just look at the king the wrong way, Babylon. And yet Daniel asks. Isn't that fascinating? So what happens, all right? That's the million-dollar question. Look with me at verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Now, we need to get this, okay? Otherwise, we're going to miss the boat completely on what's being communicated here in Daniel chapter 1. The, the goal of this is not to somehow think that the chief eunuch was a really nice guy and that Daniel, because he was nice, he coaxed out the best in this guy. That's going to miss the point in this text. Instead, what you need to see is that God's working. God is the one who actually gives compassion and favor. He is the one who's bringing about the change in the scenario. Not even the chief eunuch. 
And, and this is so crucial because there's a subtle message that when God is giving his favor, which is his chesed, his loyal love that we see all throughout the Old Testament, his rachamim, his compassion, all throughout the Old Testament, these are key words that are communicated to the people of Israel. When he communicates that, what is the means by which he gives this compassion and favor? Through his oppressors which is a subtle reminder as to who is really in control this whole time. Do you see that? That's the beauty of that. God's in control here. And Daniel, he's committed to God, and it leads him to ask this question of his oppressors for a provision, and God intervenes. And, and listen, to be sure, it's not when Judah falls to Babylon. It's not when Daniel's taken from his family. It's not when Daniel's forced to be a slave. But it's here that God grants favor. And we aren't out of the woods less yet because, listen, the, the palace official's main concern isn't that Daniel feels really good about the food he's eating. This isn't like Burger King. Have it your way, right? You remember that slogan? Pickles, no pickles, whatever, you know? That's not what we see as the main goal for this guy. In verse 10, we read that the palace official's main goal is just to keep his head on his shoulders. Nice and neat. Because if, if Daniel and his boys, they don't eat something, the king's going to lay the smack down on, some, on someone. But if, if Daniel and his boys do eat something and it still goes askew, then the smackdown's coming down on this palace official. And he gets that. But, but the palace official's not the only one who gets this. If you go down to verse 11, Daniel gets it too. He comes with understanding and even compassion to this chief eunuch. In verse 11, he has a plan. He doesn't call this guy a moron. He doesn't change his Facebook profile, Right? Instead, he comes up with actually a really low-risk plan that meets this chief eunuch where he's at and also provides an avenue for change. It's really wise. And he basically says, hey, why don't you just let us be vegans for 10 days, okay? And then why don't you compare us to everybody else and see who's better? And let's be clear. I mean, this isn't like they were going on the Whole30 diet or the full 60 or whatever, I don't know, whatever you guys are doing. But the, the word for vegetables in verse 12 is to, just to, is to describe animal feed, okay? This is the food that was meant to go to animals, and they choose that over the food that's coming from the storehouse of the king. It's this grain that they would mash up and make porridge. Think Oliver Twist, not Top Chef, okay? <laughs> this is a significantly different option they're making here. It's not like, ooh, steamed broccoli, delicious, some of you are like, I'll take that anyway. And with such a low risk, and in the hopes that Daniel and his boys will actually eat something, the steward, he finally gives in and he says, fine, do what you got to do. But what happens? Look with me here at verse 15. It says, they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. They were fat and it was good. You won't find that anywhere else, right? <laughs> And seeing that the steward would actually profit from the switch the remainder of their time that they're under his care, those three years where they're in Babylonian school, he allows them to eat according to their conscience. But it doesn't stop there. Do you remember that little phrase, God gave, we saw in verse 9? If you get down to verse 17, as we continue to detail out this story we see playing out in chapter 1, when, God, or when, when Daniel's talking about Daniel and the boys, we read, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. <clears throat> Once again, this is huge because in an ancient Near Eastern context, okay, you need to understand that food, 
The blessing that would come from these false gods and the nutrients that would be infused in this food would make you godlike. Your mental acuity and your wisdom, they were all integrated. And the very fact that Daniel and his boys, they push away what was considered like the best diet known in that culture, the one that would give you the leg up, the one that would help you be like the gods, and they choose animal food, and they're not just better, they're not just five times better, but when you get to verse 20, what do you see? The king looks at them and he says, these guys are like 10 times better, brighter, smarter, stronger than everyone else. I mean, they knew the Babylonian language. They, they embraced many of the Babylonian customs. They learned Babylonian literature, we read. And they knew the Babylonian practices better than anyone. They were seen as now the best of the best. And God gave honoring their resolve. God gave honoring these guys' resolve and to carry about a plan that was much bigger than Daniel and his boys. Now, you hear this story, and there's so many ways you could go about it, but I want to ask this question this morning. How do we, looking at Daniel, looking at what God's doing in the story of Daniel, and God is clearly the main character, understanding that God is sovereign, that he's caring, that he's working in the world in ways that we can't even see, how do we respond to this? How do we live without control, without losing our soul? When we find ourselves in a cultural context where we smack into the wall and, the, and our conscience feels bruised or is asking, now what? How do we live? Well, if there's one thing I want us to walk away from this morning, thinking, I, understanding God's sovereign, understanding that God's the one working behind the scenes, but for our response, the catalyst to Daniel's faithfulness that we see here throughout his life and that is held up as a godly example for us to follow is this. Commit to what you know before you go. Commit to what you know before you go. Listen, before Daniel talked to anybody, before he talked to his boys, before he talked to his boss, he'd made up his mind. He was not going to be defiled, period. Commit to what you know before you go. Before you go into work, before you start looking for that next job, before you go on that date, before you turn on your computer, before you go on that next business trip, before you take that class, commit to what you know before you go. And here's the deal. I've had so many conversations as a pastor. I'm sitting across the table, and the real rub in so many people's lives when they're wrestling with something, and some of you know this to be true, it's not that you need new information, is it? Most of us know the right thing to do. You know Scripture well enough. You have Christian brothers and sisters around you who are encouraging you well enough. Your, your, your conscience is convicting you well enough. The real question is whether you'll commit to it or not. Listen, most battles aren't won or lost in the realm of our wits. Some of them are. And there are times we need to explore and learn more. But to think that just more information is the biggest answer to most of our problems in the world is the most erroneous response ever. It's not just education. You see, most battles are won and lost in the muck and mire of our heart and what we really want, what we really desire, what we long for. Because what the heart wants the mind finds justifiable, and the hands will always find doable. Commit to what you know before you go. Commit to what you know before you go. And maybe you don't know all the answers, but start with what you do know and commit to that. And go with that. Because if you can't commit to what you already do know, who's to say you'll ever commit to what you don't? You see? 
Now, I know when I say commitment, um, I think one of the greatest temptations in the midst of all this is to instantly marry that with a condition, right? What do I mean? A, A commitment is saying, I will or I won't. Daniel says, I will not. He was resolved not to defile himself. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. A condition sounds a lot more like this. If my boss hears me out, then I'll. When I get enough financial security, then I'll. Only when you, God, give me, then I'll. If she stays faithful or he stays faithful, then I'll. And, and And I want you to do this for me because I know this is a battle in my own life. This isn't something I'm talking to you like I've mastered. This is, I'm really preaching this to myself here. Next time you're, you're tempted to, to add on and marry a condition with a, with a clear commitment that you see within Scripture, I want you to actually tease out that thought process. Write it out. Like, for example, imagine you're staring Jesus square in the eyes and you say, Jesus, you know, I, I know you're really important. I would, I would even say you're the most important person in my life. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. And I know, I know, I know you long and you've called me to financial integrity and you always want my good. But, you know, I really, I really love going out to dinner with some of my, some of my friends. And, and to do that, I kind of need to misrepresent my cash tips I've been getting on the weekend when it comes to my taxes. And then I want you to really make yourself clear. No, 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 Jesus, you know, you're, you're pretty important. But when it comes to this fun part, I, I think you... I think this is a little more important than, than your call on me and integrity and that you maybe just don't get it quite here. And, and so I'm committed to you, but, but if you really want me to be committed all the way, then, then you're going to have to give me a raise on my salary so I can still have fun with my friends. And then I'll start committing, you know, to, to really appropriately designate my funds on my taxes. You get it, right? You could do this with any aspect of your life. Or we're so tempted to take a commitment and marry it to a condition, and then it becomes meaningless. And you've become the Lord of your life once again, rather than trusting in the one true sovereign God. You see, whenever you marry a commitment to a condition, it's no longer a commitment. And notice, Daniel never bargains with God here, does he? Not here in this passage. He commits, and then he figures out the how later. And that's a challenge for us. I love what one preacher once said, God doesn't reveal his will for our consideration. He reveals it for our participation. You see? And and I need to say this, in the midst of all of this, when we hear this charge and we see this beautiful example (coughs) and how we respond to God's sovereignty in the midst of these moments, if I don't tell you this, you're going to miss it and you're going to become bitter and jaded. Chances are really good. Hear me. Just because you commit to what you know before you go, that doesn't mean you're promised a comfortable outcome, right? That doesn't mean you're promised a comfortable outcome. And I mean, even for Daniel, as we'll come to see, and as we've already seen, his life wasn't, quote unquote, defined by comfort. I mean, the dude was trafficked to Babylon and was a slave. Later on, we find he's thrown to lions. I mean, he doesn't have what we would call a comfortable life. And then there are countless stories of God's people when you look in the letter written to the Hebrews where the author reminds us that there are so many that this world was not even counted worthy of, he writes. When out of faith they lost influence, loved ones, and even their lives when they committed to what they knew before they went. And they paid for it with their lives. 
So if that's true, if we don't know how the rest of our story is going to be written, but we do hear this call to be committed with what we do know, why do it? I mean, if you commit today and you're not promised, quote unquote, tomorrow, why do it? And what Daniel wants us to see, what we see promised across the pages of Scripture, if we don't hold this front and center every day of our lives, then we're going to be utterly discouraged. And it's this, that God will always have victory in the end. God will always have victory in the end. Look with me just at chapter 1. This was so fascinating as I was digging this week. You start off in verse 3 with Judah has fallen and God's given the king of Judah actually into the hands of the king of Babylon. But try as they might, Babylon moves a bunch of Israelites over into their own land. They try to re-educate them. They try to reorient them. They try to brainwash them. They try to force them to worship new gods. But God's actually defeating Babylon from the inside out. Do you see this? With Daniel. He's caring for Daniel. He's with Daniel. And he's bringing victory through Daniel. How? When Daniel's resolved not to participate in the status quo brought on by Babylon, and he pushes back, and he says he won't be defiled by eating that food, he finds a new pathway, and Daniel and his boys become the best men in the king's court. Shaming the Babylonian system over three years as to who's really in control. It's not the Babylonian God's blessing this ridiculous food. Instead, it's the God, Yahweh, who's over his people, Israel, who continues to work and is in control and is now defeating Babylon behind enemy lines. And then you end with verse 21. Verse 21, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. In one sense, we see that Daniel can stand with his resolve to the very end. Over 60 years, he stands in the king's court as one of his primary confidants. He's still resolved and yet can still serve the king of Babylon and does it for over 60 years. But then there's this other element of hope that we can't miss. King Cyrus, if you know anything of your history, this is extremely crucial. Because as Babylon sought to exile Israel, King Cyrus, the king of Persia, when he defeats Babylon, he allows Israel to return to the promised land. Right here in this small little note, we see that the battle will not be waged forever, but God will bring about his victory in his time and his way, no matter how dark it may be. And this is the very core of the story of Daniel. This is the story of the gospel that God became flesh and he died on the cross for you and me, but he was not defeated. But three days later, he rose again. And always, it's always darkest before the dawn. But victory always is promised to those who commit to who we know before we go. And the beauty of all of that is that God was committed to us way before we ever were to him. That's why we can do this. That's why he calls us to us, calls us to this. That's how he empowers us to now be committed to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. I remember um, in college, a professor was in the middle of a lecture and he just like stopped and he looked at us, a bunch of college students who were ready just to graduate and get on with life. And it didn't really have anything to do with the lecture. And he just said, hey, everybody, listen, listen, listen. Don't make decisions based upon where you want to be when you're 30. You're making a lot of decisions right now. You're making plans on where you want to be by 30. He said, make decisions today based upon where you want to be when you're 50, when you're 60. And I've never forgotten that. Having a longer viewpoint, rather than just focusing on the next couple years. And I think that's what Daniel's even challenging us here 
As he's looking back over his life, he gives us a quick snapshot in chapter one of the beginning and how he entered Babylon and how Babylon comes to ruins, his whole life long right here. And he wants us to look back and and even for us to be looking back and ask the question, what story do you want your life to tell? Do you want to look back and see that there's a bunch of these conditional moments that continually gave way to bad habits? Or do you want to be able to look back in those catalytic moments of resolve where God worked in ways you never thought possible? Those moments when knowing what you know from God's word, you said, I'll stand or I won't partake. And you watched as God worked through you. Oftentimes, you don't even know that God's working through that moment until you look back. In the same vein, I'm sure that Daniel didn't understand the robust nature of what God was doing. But I do ask that question to myself. What, will that be your story? Will that be my story? Or will you look back and wonder what if? How do you live without control, without losing your soul? Well, first and foremost, it always has to begin with committing to what you know before you go. It's got to start there. Before you leave here today, will you commit? And maybe, maybe you're here and you've dropped the ball a thousand times and you're so discouraged. Well, but by God's grace, you can pick it up again. And today may be the day that we can stand together and say we commit to him, to each other, and then we can look back together. And listen, this isn't a short sprint. This is a marathon. You can look back at the end of your life and you can say, God gave, God gave, God gave, God gave. Don't you want that to be your story? Commit to what you know before you go today. God's in control, yes. How do you live without control, without losing your soul? Commit to what you know before you go. Let's pray. (coughs) God, there's so much happening in Daniel 1, and you're the one who's working and weaving together a tapestry that points us over and over again to your wondrous work. And as we stand here as your people, we ask, now what of us? How do we respond And this this wrestling of the will, God, is something that the Holy Spirit must convict us, must continue to empower, must continue to form us in. And so, God, I pray that for us, those who are wrestling here this morning, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you convict them and give them this commitment to what they know before they go, as it's revealed in Scripture. For those who have been committed but are beginning to feel discouraged, that you would encourage their hearts this morning to keep the long view that when a life is lived and they look back, they can also say, God gave, God gave, God gave. God help us. Oh, we can't do this without you. God guide us. We so often, we so often, so often feel lost without you. And thank you for the promise of your victory that comes in the cross and is promised in the restoration of all things one day. May we live with confidence in light of that truth. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.